Today on the ZabeCast, am I the only one in America willing to say that maybe Sister Jean overstepped her welcome at the Final Four? Oh, I am? Well, all right then. I'll make my case. We've got Gabe Kapler using relievers in the bigs like free toilet paper. ESPN's new morning show, Get Up. Arike's Double Daggers, your emails, and 8K TV. You got half an hour to kill, then buckle up and let's go. Monday, April 2nd, 2018, a glorious Monday, always on the sporting calendar. Not only are we looking forward to the national championship game tonight between Villanova and Michigan, Villanova minus six and a half, oh, by the way, but also the gates, the pearly gates to Augusta National are open for business for the finest golfers in the world. It's a beautiful Monday. Thanks for listening. Thank you for your download. Let's get right to it. More on Villanova, Michigan tonight uh, for the big Kia quarterly sales award plaque, also known as the NCAA championship trophy. That remains a great abomination, a great outrage on the sporting scene that that trophy is allowed to be the championship trophy. Look at it. It's a giant plaque. Yeah, it's got some glass in the middle. Yeah, it's kind of angled in a way that makes it look sort of whatever. But still, they got to do better than that. I'm a trophy guy. I'm a uniform nerd. I'm a, I'm a guy like Brian Nelson that loves all the little details of sports. Let's try to get that trophy looking a little bit better, okay? NCAA. All right, 10-pack of things today, as always here on the Zabecast. Let's start with Sister Jean. First of all, apparently she did not ail the game. For those of you that don't know, maybe new to me, maybe new to the Zabecast, the ale theory, A-L-E, goes as follows. Always leave early. Yes, my, my theory has been that beating traffic while going to a sporting event by leaving just a bit early is like a championship unto itself. It is an intoxicating feeling to be whisking out of parking lots and left and right and out. and de- de- You can sometimes, if you leave early enough, be home in time to watch the finish of the game you went to on television, which is a glorious double dip. Now, it depends on how far away from you, the game or the stadium you live. depends on how long the game goes, if it goes to overtime or extra innings, etc., etc. There are exceptions to the ale theory, even though it's the A-L-E theory always leave early. I do believe that in playoff games in which it's a stakes game or a winner go home game, game sevens, or I will generally like usually springtime when I'm going to Capitals games, if it's a Friday or a Saturday night game and I've got nowhere to be the next day, I'll stay. It also helps that, you know, downtown at the Verizon center, oops, dollar in the tip jar, the capital one center that Downtown, our arena downtown in D.C. is a very easy retreat, relatively speaking, compared to other arenas because it is downtown. And so there's a good percentage of people that take cabs or Ubers somewhere else downtown or there take the subway, which is right there uh, next to uh, almost underneath the stadium itself. So leaving by car is not too onerous, even if you leave after the game is over. So there are sometimes exceptions to the Yale theory, but for the most part, you always leave early. Now, I saw Sister Jean, like you saw Sister Jean, being wheeled out 
of her position, her seat, I guess, where she was sitting in her wheelchair, with about a minute and change to go as the game was pretty much slipping out of the hands of Loyola of Chicago. And me and everyone else on Twitter immediately erupted with the ale takes and the sister Jean bailing and everything else. It was only revealed a little bit later on that apparently this happens every game and that she was only moving positions to be able to then hug and greet the players as they came off the court, which she has allegedly done every game this year and every game last year. Every game that she's ever been a part of, apparently she does this. So if that's the case, my apologies. Uh, You did not ail the game early. Not that I would have necessarily been against it. I just was laughing, thinking, here's my theory, the ale theory, and none other than Sister Jean was employing it to get out of Dodge just a tick early. Here's my real problem with Sister Jean. She overstayed her welcome, and she also took oxygen from the room when it came to the players. I believe that once they made the Final Four, I think Sister Jean should have bowed out. I think Sister Jean should have let it be known through their SID department, through their media channels that she is done doing interviews. And while Bob and Brian might have said, well, that would make her look like a diva, you can't win either way. No, I don't think people would call her a diva. If she had just said, look, I appreciate all the attention. I've had fun giving interviews leading up to this Final Four. But these young men have worked like crazy to get to this point. This is their moment. This is their party. This is their time to shine. You don't need to talk to me. You know my story. I love this team. I love these kids. I love basketball. End of story. I'm here to watch and root and be part of the program. Don't interview me. Interview them. She could have said that, but she didn't say that. She held a press conference leading up to the Final Four, I think it was on Friday, in which she had 150-plus media members in attendance. It was crazy, according to those people who covered the press conference. And in in the absence of everything else, what's the problem with that, right? So what? People wanted to talk to her. They wanted to interview her. They wanted to write stories about her. The problem is the media is lazy, and they go for the easiest clickbait. And because Sister Jean was a hot item, which she is now no longer going to be, and it was, you know, their editors are like, well, the Sister Jean story got 10,000 likes or shares, and this story about someone else about Clayton Custer, the player of the year in the Missouri Valley Conference, that only got 2,000. I don't want you writing about him. I want you writing about Sister Jean. That's the world we live in now when it comes to journalism and what stories get promoted. There is this desire to give the people what they want. And again, in the absence of any other considerations, what's wrong with getting giving people what they want? Well, I liken it to journalistic junk food. We are all consuming more and more journalistic junk food day after day after day. And I'm as guilty as anybody else. I scan Twitter with one thumb, and I just read the tweets. I don't bother to dig into a story. That's like eating a full healthy meal, like a salad, an information salad that's going to be good for me. Learn about something. I just scan and go, okay, okay. And then when there comes a silly, easy popcorn story, like, ooh, Anthony Davis is going to shave his unibrow. I'm like, click, 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 click. It's ridiculous. I fall victim to it, or I am guilty of it. You choose which one. 
as much as anybody else. Yeah, man, I'll tell you what, that dang old internet, internet, man, you just go on there and point and click, get in there and talk about www.wcom, and you got them naked chicks on there, man. You go click, 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 click. It's real easy, man. It's not Sister Jean's fault that the media goes gaga over her, but she should have, I think, understood that. I think she should have gracefully said, you know what, fine, I'll do, listen, tell tell TBS I'll do one interview, I'll do a, a timeout interview of no more than two minutes max during the Final Four game in the first half and only as long as Loyola's not getting killed at the time that I give the interview. And that's it, because I don't want this to be about me. Now, of course, by having this take, some will blame me for just cooking up a purposely contrarian take. Some will criticize me for saying, how dare you say that about a sweet old 98-year-old nun? And that's fine. I guess no nuns can ever be criticized. We assume she's sweet because she's old. That's not always the case. We assume she's good because she's a nun. That's also not always the case. But she seems to be sweet and a good person and loves her basketball. But at the end of the day, it's like, hey, sister, you're not the only old lady who likes basketball, okay? Next time, let it be about the kids. And if that makes me the most heartless asshole in the world, I guess I'm going to have to wear that. But I genuinely believe that. This is not a hot take. This is not some contrarian thing that I said, ooh, what would be good to get people riled up today? I genuinely think this was you know, somebody showing up their sister's baby shower with an engagement announcement of their own. It's like, hey, I thought today was supposed to be about me. Well, what's wrong? I mean, we're happy, we're in love, and, and you're having a baby. We we can both enjoy both right now. Well, yeah, you could have you know, done your engagement announcement tomorrow or next week or something like that. God bless you, Sister Jean. God bless Loyola. Great team, great run, great Cinderella, but the slipper got smashed. By Michigan. On to other insignificant things in the big scheme of things. The Laura Ingram scandal. Once again, a single word in a single tweet has put a multi-million dollar job in jeopardy. I don't think Laura Ingram's going to get fired. I'd be kind of surprised if she did. But, you know, it's now actually, in theory, in play. Single word in a single tweet. I believe the word that got her was when she said that uh, David Hogg was whining about being rejected at four different colleges, including UCLA. I think if she had just tweeted, uh, and I think she just retweeted a story about how this was the case, that with a 4.2 GPA and now with this activism on his record as an extracurricular of sorts, how could any college ever say no to a guy like David Hogg? Had she just retweeted the story... And just said everything else in that tweet, minus the word whines, I don't think this story goes anywhere. I think it was that whining part that made it acceptable for Hogg to then fire back and say, hey, here's her advertisers, let's go get them. Now the bigger question is, should teenage activists like this be fair game for what would be rough fouls committed by adults in the rhetorical game of basketball being played these days on cable news and on Twitter and social media. That's an argument that I don't know the full answer to. I think it all depends, and I'm not really concerned about it here. It was a cheap shot by Ingram, though. It was sort of a ha-ha. It was a Nelson Muncian ha-ha about him not getting into a a handful of schools. (laughs) Which, really, for her level as a 
big-time cable network pundit, was beneath her. Didn't need to do that. But nowadays, a common political attack is essentially, this guy's an idiot, or that woman is a moron. And then you add something else afterwards. That's now common political commentary. And so when you get a teenager who has been through a traumatic, horrifying life experience like David Hogg, he is kind of insulated in this, you know, you, you can't you can't do that. You know, no matter what he says, you can't treat him like any other participant in the media or in the political realm that he has special protection. And of course, advertisers did start dropping out. I believe it was twelve advertisers, which sounds like a lot, before Laura Ingram took vacation, which she said was previously scheduled for Easter. Some said, Oh, really? Is that what it who knows? I mean Easter would be a really logical time to take some vacation, but at the same time, it did seem a bit convenient. Whatever, I don't care. I don't care about her vacation. I don't care about where David Hogg goes to college either. I really don't. And neither should any of us because none of this matters in the big scheme of things. Ingram's mistake, though, was apologizing. And it's why Joan Rivers was so awesome before she passed away, sadly, from uh, additional plastic surgery that went sideways. Joan Rivers never apologized. Now, Joan Rivers didn't necessarily have too many jobs that she didn't have control over that she had to answer to. She did do that red carpet stuff for, I believe, E! Network, and I'm not sure if she ever got put on ice because of things she said there, but she was an equal opportunity offender. And Joan Rivers, as a comedian, comedian, loved to slay people and was ruthless and never apologized. So that was Ingram's mistake. She apologized, but showed weakness, and then it was like blood in the water. Of course, her bosses probably made her do it as well. And I've been there before, believe me. <laughs> All I would hope is if I'm her that my, bo- my boss and my network would have my back to say, hey, okay, the tweet was a rough shot. It was a cheap shot. It was out of bounds, but she apologized, and we're moving on. You would hope that Fox would have her back and say enough of this nonsense of course we're not going to fire her and you know let's move on you would hope and beyond that i would hope that fox would even say to these brands that do this i, I would call them up and say listen uh we respect your opinion your decision to do this you can spend your money anywhere else you want to but guess what don't ever call us again don't no seriously once this dies down, because this will die down, this is a, a another popcorn fart in the political wind. Once this dies down, and you call us up in six months to go, hey, we were looking for a buy. Uh-uh, no, not anymore. We're not. You know, you're trying to damage us with this, you know, boycott and fleeing. And guess what? Your your money's no good. This is what Augusta National did when Martha Burke was ginning up her protests about a female member. As a preemptive move, because Augusta, while they have plenty of money, they excuse their sponsors for, I think, two years in a row. They're like, you know what? Forget it. We're not even going to let you be part of this as our corporate sponsors. Just here. You're out. We're going to broadcast, and we're going to run sort of PSAs during what would normally be commercial breaks. It was brilliant. It was great. It was a boss move. And it, it really took one big weapon out of Martha Burke's hands. Could Fox do that? Probably not. 
But at the same time, Fox is a major entity that is nested within even bigger entities. And I heard that, yes, while 12 sponsors did say they were pulling their ads, at least for now, it was from a pool of like 150 different advertisers that buy time on Fox Network on all kinds of shows. So 11 out of 150 doesn't seem quite as much. But again, it goes back to Twitter. It goes back to Twitter. It is a case of if you say something on your radio show or on your TV show, I've learned this the hard way, that Twitter is the lazy person's way to cape up and to be, I'm sensitive, I'm sincere, look at this, how dare this person say this. You can basically say whatever you want, for the most part, on your radio show or on your TV show, And nobody is going to take the time to transcribe it and put it in their own tweet and say, did you hear what so-and-so said on their show? And then include a quote and then get that going on Twitter and get the boat rocking back and forth. It almost never happens unless somebody says something really, really egregious. Because with Twitter, when you see somebody else quoting somebody, then you have to say to yourself, well... That's what they said was said, but how do I know? It's not from this actual blue checkmark Twitter account. So you have to actually believe it. And then you might actually, let's say somebody pulled the clip of you saying something like mocking David Hogg for not getting into UCLA. Once you put the clip on Twitter and said, can you believe what someone said about this? Once you listen to the clip, I almost guarantee it. Whatever someone says on the radio or on television, never sounds as bad as it looks bad in 140 characters taken out of context. Almost never. And people have a harder time getting riled up over it unless it truly is really, really, really egregious. Of course, Fox's rivals pounced on this. NBC spent three minutes on Saturday night during their national newscast on this controversy. I was like really three minutes on Laura Ingram and David Hogg in a Twitter fight. Interesting. I knew why NBC did it. Of course they get to skewer a rival and to make the most of this. But as I kind of in my mind zoomed out and said, so NBC, you've got 24 minutes minus commercials to tell us the listeners what's going on in the world. What's important in the world. What deserves our attention? What's interesting? What's meaningful? What's going to have an impact on your lives? You got 24 minutes. You spent three of those minutes on this. Laura Ingram's vacation and David Hogg's college. Okay. This ties into another story that has some people all up in arms. Sinclair Broadcasting, which owns a bunch of TV stations, has made all of their on-air anchors read a statement that is pretty much a manifesto about fake news, or so some people say. Others would say it's just sort of a brand statement by Sinclair Broadcasting in which they say, look, there's a lot of flimsy, one-sided, sensationalistic news out there, and we here at Sinclair Broadcasting are going to do our best to give you actual news news. I know a lot of people on the left are like, this is it, this is the beginning of fascism, here it comes. Others, if you're going to be more reasonable, would say, well, given that NBC spent three minutes on the Laura Ingram-David Hogg controversy as so-called news, maybe Sinclair is actually right, saying we're going to try to not do this kind of stuff. 
Interesting. I don't even know why Laura Ingram really has a Twitter account anyway. I think she's got 2.1 million followers. But how much money is she making off of Twitter? She's got to be making a ton, mo- a ton of money at Fox, ton of money on speaking engagements. Maybe she does some writing. Maybe she's done some books. I don't know. Why do you have Twitter? Just give your Twitter to an account manager that only tweets out promotional things. It's a sucker's game. And as for young David Hogg, look, I hope he knows this. His time is probably going to come to a close quickly here, and he'll probably be dumped to the side of the road by those who have used him so well the last month or so, and he'll be like John Goslin someday wondering, hey, what happened? Where's the party? What do I do now? And the answer is live your life, young man. Live your life. And if you want to be an activist full-time, go for it. Go for it. But otherwise, life goes on. Your 15 minutes is probably about up. Gabe Kapler, how's he doing in Philadelphia? A 15-2 drubbing by Atlanta over the weekend in which he had to end the game with Pedro Florimon, a shortstop, on the mound. He was the sixth pitcher that day used by Gabe Kapler. He had used nine pitchers the day before, had used six pitchers on opening day after pulling starter Aaron Nola after five and a third with only three hits, one run, one walk, and a 5 nothing lead. Making it worse over the weekend was when uh, Kapler called for a reliever in the third inning. Hobie, Bil- Hobie Milner was supposed to be coming out of the bullpen. Hobie Bil- Milner did not know he was supposed to be warming up. The phone call never came. Kapler leaves the dugout, goes to the mound, you know, waves his arm to the bullpen like, let's go. And Milner's like, uh, what? <laughs> he hadn't warmed up. He takes a few hasty warm-ups. He then gets to the mound. He's already late, took, took later, longer than usual to get to the mound. Didn't have a bullpen. See, where a bullpen cart would have come in real handy, don't you think? To whisk him to the mound. Goes to the mound and then um, gets like five warm-up pitches, not eight. And that was five too many for the Atlanta Braves and their skipper, Brian Snitker, who was like, hey, what the fuck, man, with this delay? And then Snitger gets ejected, and after the game, Jerry Lane, the crew chief, said, whoever's at fault for not doing their job on the Philly side should have to answer to Major League Baseball. Boom, roasted. Not often you see a umpire rip into a manager like that. Kapler, who calls himself a, quote, relentless communicator, unquote, took the blame for the communication breakdown between the dugout and the bullpen that left him waving for a reliever who still had his warm-up jacket on. Said Kapler, anytime we have a miscommunication, it's my responsibility, so I take full responsibility for it. Well, yes, you should, because you are the manager. He would not go into specifics about the breakdown, like how did that happen exactly. Kapler, of course, is one of the new breed of no managing experience, no problem. Like uh, Aaron Boone with the Yankees and others, it's, uh, it's a case of, yeah, let's let these guys try it out. How hard can it be? And according to experts... Kapler is a child of analytics, and he loves the analytics of the game and is going to use them in all areas. Some are saying that the increased use of a bullpen during everyday games is something that's going to be catch on around the major leagues, that what Kapler is doing now may seem crazy and he may not be using it quite correctly, but that this is now how many teams are going to use their extra pitchers. And maybe there's a lot of sense to that. I'm not enough of a seam head to really have engaged in that debate, but if you think about it, if during the course of a game you have, I don't know, 10 pitchers out in the bullpen and you only use two, 
Well, couldn't you be using some fresh arms on any given day to get guys out? Maybe. Maybe not. Also, Kepler is apparently big on out-of-the-box ideas, including nutritional issues. So the Phillies are going to be eating a lot of salads this year, but I know this. Get your bullpen up and warm before you decide to pull the guy on the mound. Drive, chip, and putt at Augusta National. This is absolutely awesome. One of my favorite, oh. one of my favorite new wrinkles in sports. It is kids from all around the country, up to age 14, 15, who go through a regional competition from a sub-regional site to a regional site to a final site to then go to Augusta. It's like a three-stage qualifying process where you compete in chipping, putting, and driving. Or driving, chipping, and putting. The order doesn't matter. You get the point. Anyone can do it. I think it it's free. It may cost a nominal amount of money. I don't know. It's a joint initiative that they started five years ago between the PGA of America, the USGA, which runs the U.S. Open, and the Masters Tournament. And it's great. It's great to get kids excited about something. It is kind of like a real-life sporting Willy Wonka with a, t- with a golden ticket to the Wonka factory. You're going to Augusta, which is the Wonka factory. And you are like, oh, wow, this is so awesome. And it is awesome. And they televise it, and Golf Channel gets programming on a Sunday. And every year I watch it, and I get all wrapped up. And I swear to God, I almost start to get like, man, is it dusty in here or what? seeing these little kids and their parents, and they're all into it and stuff. And, of course, I then had to turn to my 15-year-old daughter, Megan, uh, the more athletic of the two daughters, and I said, you know what, Megan? This is where I failed as a dad. You and I should be there right now, and we're not. What, what happened? Where did I go wrong? Did I not force you to play golf enough? <laughs> she plays field hockey and likes it. She used to play some lacrosse, doesn't care for basketball so much, but she loves field hockey. She loves the team, and I... I put a golf club into her hand. I should have tried harder, I guess. I should have forced her to love the game that I love. I guess I thought I would be more of a hands-off dad, where if she uh, got into it and wanted to do it herself, then she would get into it. And I would then ride along with her. But whatever. She's happy. I'm happy. I just kind of joked. Megan, of course, rolled her eyes when I said this. I do love to see the parents and the kids, and and it's, it's just cool. Of course, after the event is over or whenever I turn it off after watching it for way too long, I always say to myself, did I, did I just watch that? Did I just watch a bunch of little kids, many of whom are probably country club brats with silver spoons jammed up their ass, chip and putt for a trophy on a Sunday? What is wrong with me? It's because I'm a golf nerd. What can I say? Damn you people, this is golf! Nah, I like it. It's a good It's a good event. It's a good initiative. It's good for the game. Huzzah, huzzah. We are heading towards the NBA playoffs, and Kevin Durant is once again the focus of the playoffs out west. Kevin Durant is going to have to hold down the fort for some time for the Golden State Warriors, the defending champs, if they are to defend their crown because Steph Curry is currently injured. Uh, with a knee injury and is not due back until at least the second round, according to most experts. Kevin Durant with Draymond Green, with Clay Thompson, who I think is coming back sooner than that. that excuse me. Acid reflux this morning. Uh, Kevin Durant ought to be enough to carry them through. 
But Kevin Durant is obviously feeling more and more pressure these days. And Kevin Durant is a, well, he's a bit of an interesting dude. He's a very emotional guy. Kevin Durant has been kicked out of more games this year. He's gotten more tees this year than ever. And he's being asked about this, like, what's the deal? Here's what Durant said in a recent interview. Quote, it's just my emotions and my passion for the game. After winning that championship last season, I learned that much hadn't changed. I thought it would fill a certain void. It didn't. That's when I realized in the offseason that the only thing that matters in this game and how much work you put into it, everything else off the court and social media perception isn't important. What people say, how they view you, it's not important. See, he says that now, but does he actually believe it? Few athletes in our modern time have been as obsessed and as affected by what people think about him, or more importantly, what Kevin Durant thinks people think about him, which is why leaving Oklahoma City was such big drama, which is why the feud between him and Russell Westbrook is such big drama, which is why Kevin Durant sets up burner Twitter accounts to engage in fans who might say anything critical of Kevin Durant on social media. Man, I don't know. I love Kevin Durant's game. I love watching him play basketball. And he hit a big Stones three last year in the finals to help Golden State win that thing. Very instrumental. He's a badass on the court. But he, like a lot of players today, like a lot of big-time athletes, man, they are tissue paper off the court. They are mentally just so skitterish. It's why those of my generation, the late 40-something, early 50-something curmudgeons, it's why to us, Jordan is always going to be the standard and the king. Because Jordan had a, I don't give a fuck, that was intoxicating to watch. Now granted, he was not living in a social media era. He was playing in a time in which, well, things were different. But still, he had that vibe about him like, Fuck you, I'm the best. I know I'm the best, but I don't even need to say I'm the best. It's guys like, you know, uh, LeBron James saying if he had a vote in MVP, he'd vote for himself. Some people got a little bit riled up about that and rolled their eyes. I didn't because I happen to agree with him. He is the MVP. No offense to James Harden or anyone else, but fuck. Look at LeBron's season. If LeBron was not on Cleveland, they would be a hot shit sandwich, and you know it, and I know it, and everyone else would. Now, LeBron James is not my taste. He's not my style. He's not, I don't get giddy about watching LeBron James, but I can objectively say, shit, this guy is the best player in the league, period. Again, give him the MVP. But Durant and, and, and LeBron, to a lesser degree, they're very sensitive. They should just realize, hey, man, I'm a great basketball player. We both have rings. I'm getting paid a gajillion dollars. People like me. Oh, God, do people like Kevin Durant. And sports is hard, and sometimes you win and sometimes you lose, and just roll with that. Television news. NHK to roll out 8K television? Good God! TV broadcasters are still wrapping their heads around 8K as a concept, but that's not stopping NHK, industry giant from Japan, from pushing forward with the technology. 
They're showing it off at the annual NAB trade show with a slew of 8K inventions, including a high-speed camera in 8K. It's not really portable, but it can shoot 240 frames per second in 8K. <laughs> awesome. Love to see that. <laughs> That would be ideal for slow motion sports footage or reduced motion blur at all speeds. Appropriately, there's a dedicated hardware for stretching out playback at the extra high resolution. There's also more in the works. NHK also plans to show off an 8K virtual reality display that could eliminate the pixelated look that comes from having screens so close to your eyes. It's promising to make 8K broadcasts more practical for that matter as well. A new transmitter can squeeze 8K video from 40 gigabytes per second down to just 8 gigabytes per second and quickly convert it into an IP-based signal, making it viable for live broadcasts without ruining the quality. Well, I'm all for that. I just have one question. Can they get 4K broadcasts up and running first before they go run out and do 8K? Because I have a 4K TV or two. I'd love to, sh- to show some genuine 4K programming. It seems to me that 4K sports, which is really all we care about, right? 4K sports, that's stalled. 4K in sports seemingly is stalled. I don't know anybody. I haven't read anything about here's who's pushing it. I know that DirecTV, you can buy, uh, you can buy a, a, re- a receiver that gets 4K original broadcasts, but it's very limited. And I don't know how many broadcasters like CBS, NBC, Fox, etc. are upgrading their original production equipment from cameras to editing tapes and everything else to 4K, much less 8K. Get up! Exclamation point. New show by ESPN on Sunday morning. Long-awaited, much ballyhooed, and very expensive. Led by Mike Greenberg, uh, Jalen Rose, and Michelle Beadle. Watched it this morning, the debut of it. It was snowing in New York City. Very expensive, beautiful studio in downtown Manhattan. And my first take was, first take, pardon the pun, my first impression was, yeah, it's uh, it's ESPN. I know Greeny. I know Jalen. I know Beatle. I've seen him before. They had Marcellus Wiley on. I've seen him before. They brought on Jay Billis, who is their college basketball expert. I've seen him before. And then they had Charles Barkley, where it's like, is there anything Charles Barkley is not on? Ever. It's ESPN. I mean, it's nice. They had some interesting features and segments, but I don't know what they're trying to do here. I guess they're trying to launch what will be a bedrock morning show, morning cable television show that can compete with and steal share from the very crowded morning cable TV landscape. I don't know. It uh, It's not bad, but I don't know how much different it is per se. Get up is the name of it. I'm sure you'll watch it on ESPN at least once or twice. Give me your feedback. I'd like to hear. Did anyone have a better weekend than Arike Agunbowale of Notre Dame? Step back dagger to win in the semis against UConn in overtime and to slay the UConn bully Gino Oriyama and then did it again with a championship game winner at the buzzer uh, against Mississippi State two days later. How awesome is that? Also, speaking of awesome, had to be, I think, the camera cam that showed the ESPN crew of Adam Amin, Rebecca Lobo, and Carol Lawson calling that step-back dagger that slayed UConn. Here's how it sounded. For a trip to the national championship. 
Ogumawale. Good! One second remaining. No timeouts for UConn. Williams down the floor. Samuelson. Notre Dame with the win. Off to the title game. Very cool to see how they all three of them played it afterwards. By the way, great call by Adam Amin. And as I watched him do the call, it just reminded me of how much more minimalist you need to be as a television announcer. Because he was just literally like one word, a gunlier. Or not a gunlier, a, a, a gunbawali. There we go. Who was uh, Adam Agunlier? Agunlier was, uh, someone will text me on that. There was a former player by the name of Agunlier in sports. Agunlier. Uh, Adewal Agunlier. Oh, yeah, Miami Dolphins, defensive end out of Indiana. Indiana was a Chicago Bear as well. So it's list him as defensive back. No, he was not a defensive back. Come on. Come on, Wikipedia. Or if that's not Wikipedia, I don't know what it is. So, yeah, uh, the call by the three of them was amazing just because to see them, you know, Amin, very sparse, and then as soon, you know, he had the call. He didn't stumble. It's like Notre Dame with the win. They're on to the championship. <laughs> Boom, layout. And Lawson was there looking around, just kind of soaking it all in, which was cool to see. Lobo did not punch through the table as a former UConn Husky in frustration. She kept it fair, kept it fair. You know she was rooting for UConn deep down, but she was being as objective as possible. And they just laid out and let the scene play itself as you on television watched and saw the scene play out, which is great. It was a very cool thing. I wouldn't mind seeing more of that on big calls. I don't want to watch an announcer cam the entire game, but on big calls, I wouldn't mind seeing that. You can always email me, zabe at yahoo.com. I read them all. Here's a couple. This one from Sean Autry. He writes, Zabe, I'm going to the Masters for my first time this week. Since I respect your opinion, I have a very important question for you. What would be the most important apparel for me to purchase? Any ideas would be appreciated. Thank you, Sean. My answer is simply all of it. Buy every piece of apparel you can possibly afford at the Masters with their new pro shop. I just saw a picture of this online. They used to have a big tent like most tournaments. They've now built a dedicated building, which is only open for one week a year, and it looks like everything else in the Masters, impossibly perfect, impossibly awesome. Their prices like their concession prices, are not outrageous in the pro shop. You would think the Masters could charge double, that a nice golf shirt, which would normally cost $65, would be $100. No. At the Masters, a nice golf shirt with the Masters logo would be $65. And yes, you can buy a metric ton of stuff and have them box it up and ship it home or ship it to anybody you want, if not for no cost, at least for a minor cost or just shipping only. It's an incredible thing. So, Sean, enjoy the Masters and buy everything. This one from Miles Harvey. Zabe, you think the $16 craft beers at Nats Park are overpriced? When I was in Iceland last year, we paid $15 for pints of beer that were the equivalent to an MGD or a Budweiser. 
And this was Icelandic beer that was brewed less than 10 miles from our hotel in Reykjavik. Not a fancy import, not a craft beer. He said a few days into the drink, or a few days into the trip, I was told to go buy a gas station beer for a more reasonable $8 per pint. After drinking gas station beers for a day and not feeling the slightest amount of buzz, locals then told us that the beers sold in stores are alcohol-free. Iceland had us by the cojones. It was a beautiful country, though. Sincerely, Miles Harvey. That's pretty funny. Superfan Jeff Mal says, Zabe, I consider myself a one percenter, and I love all your segments. I'll get that out of the way. Now, I want to talk about what you were talking about the other day regarding the, the new NFL rules about safety and putting your head down. Also about the possibility of the NFL terminating the kickoff for safety reasons. I think I've got a solution. Let me know what you think. If you look at the old NFL films from the 70s and 80s, I noticed all the safety gear that players were wearing. Thigh pads, hip pads, knee pads, tailbone pads, neck collars, and shoulder pads that were ginormous. If the NFL would just mandate that all players have to wear this equipment, for safety reasons, it would do two things. One, it would slow the players down. And two, the larger shoulder pads would theoretically cushion the blows. I don't know. It's just a thought. Love all your shows and keep up the great work. Yes, I don't know why the league can't do this. I know there was a dispute or a bit of a a tug of war between thigh pads. And the union apparently was able to say, our guys don't have to wear them if we don't, if these guys don't want to. Michael Bennett wears kicker shoulder pads because they are less to hold on to when he is bull rushing the passer. And that is allowed by the league under whatever rules I guess they allow it. I would definitely go to a mandated set of shoulder pads that is like the 80s Herschel Walker giant shoulder pads because, yes, it's more protection, and it would slow guys down just a bit. And in the case of Michael Bennett and other defensive players, if those shoulder pads do give offensive linemen a better handle to grab onto, to block with, or even to hold with and get away with it, guess what? That's a good thing. That's fewer quarterbacks getting killed. So I'd be all for it. Uh, This one from David Lindsay regarding self-driving cars, because we talked about this both on the Zabecast and on my shows with the tragic death of the homeless woman walking her bike across the street in Arizona in the dark, no lights, uh, getting hit by the self-driving Uber car. Uh, According to David Lindsay, he says, look, the problem is uh, it's a problem about what are the priorities of the software of the self-driving car. With a human-operated car, the liability, if you do something wrong, is yours. But with a self-driving car, that liability is actually with the manufacturer. So the issue is whether or not the car will make the well-being of its passengers the top priority, or if it'll make the manufacturer's liability for external damage, other vehicles, humans on the road, pedestrians, will it make that the priority? He says the hypothetical is you and three passengers are in a self-driving car, sitting at a red light in a busy intersection. A large vehicle is approaching from behind. It's going too fast to stop. Your car's sensors notice this and know you're going to get rear-ended pretty hard. What does your car do? Does it violate a traffic law briefly to nudge out into the oncoming lane of traffic to avoid the truck that's about to rear-end you? Does it take an illegal left turn? Does it take an illegal right turn? What do you do? Do you back up suddenly? What would your software in the car do? Humans are always in that self-preservation mode, and so they think about saving their own skin first. You'll run over a human being instead of run into a dump truck that is coming the other way. 
what will the software and self-driving cars do and how will it get prioritized? Good question, David Lindsay. John in Cleveland simply says, Boo, Jerolson, boo, liar. One shining moment, he says, is a bad song because it's trite. Well, newsflash, Mr. Olson, 99% of pop music is trite. And they all suffer from the same things that you level at one shining moment. Besides, it's the song is the perfect particular context for overlaying tournament highlights to just go with it. Boo, Drew Olson, John in Cleveland. Jeremy Flom writes in, Zave, if they really want to limit kickoffs, they should just make kickoffs for the each half and the last five minutes of the fourth quarter. But if they do so, they got to bring back the kicking team to where it used to be, uh, not at the 30, but more at the 25. That way, uh, teams have a chance to actually return them. You'd limit the number of kickoffs and give the fans an actual exciting kickoff that will for sure get returned by the opposing team. Win-win, says Jeremy Flom. Yes, that would be better. That would be a nice incremental approach to say, we're not getting rid of all kickoffs. We're getting rid of all kickoffs except to start the game and to start the second half and in the final five minutes, and we're going to tweak them. But the NFL doesn't like to do that. They like to make big, sweeping, grand decisions that many of us hate. So there you go on that. I think I got the names correct with the emails. If I didn't, I apologize. Email me, zabe at yahoo.com, anytime you like. We'll leave with this today. I love anniversaries, and I love remembering on this dates as long as one thing is true. It's got to be an even 10, 20, 30, or 50-year anniversary. I'm not a fan of the random anniversaries or the random, you know, on this day, so-and-so would be this. The whole, this happened in sports, and wasn't it great, tragic, amazing, etc., some random number of years ago... It's just wearing me out on Twitter. i got to be honest. I saw this past weekend. Sean Taylor, Redskins safety, would have been 35 years old today on April 1st. Well, that's great, but guess what? He's not. He's dead, and it's tragic, and I hate being reminded of that because his death was so utterly unnecessary. But thank you for that. I appreciate that. He would have been 35. Great. Terps won the title 16 years ago. I saw that tweeted. Yeah, 16, 16 years ago. 16. Why, why, why 16? Why does that matter? It's like since stats where they say, you know, I say if something hasn't happened, if something has happened in the last 10 years, you can't use it as a since stat. In other words, if you're going to wow me with a, this is the first time since, it better be 10 years. It better be 10 years. That's the minimum for any since stat, in my opinion, to be interesting at all. As for the on this date in stat or or meme or trend, I just go with the even numbers. 10, 20, 30, and then 50. No need for a 40 because, you know, between 30 and 50, you better start waiting another 10 extra years. 10-year anniversary, 20-year anniversary, 30-year anniversary, that's it. Don't give me the fives, 5, 15, 20. No, 10, 20, 30, 50. That's what I say. Final four tonight. If you care, I will take Michigan plus the six and a half. Only on the error of recency that with Villanova draining every three on the planet, that basically they got to revert to the mean just a little bit. I think it could be a grinding game. Plus, Michigan is a very good defensive team, especially defending the three-point line. I think John Beeline and the boys are going to give them hell tonight. And I will take Michigan plus the six and a half. I can't guarantee they're going to win, but if you're giving me those many points, I'll take it. 
and we'll see what happens. All right, thanks for listening. You know the drill. Tell two friends and scratch Zabecast into a bathroom stall divider. Leave it a positive review. Download and subscribe at all the major podcast outlets, iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, Spotify, and more. And as Lawrence J. Peter once said, America is a land of taxation that was founded to avoid taxation. Get cracking on those 1080s because tax day is coming in the month of April. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next time.